It's a tough chapter, right? It's a, not one where many preachers just decide on a weekend, on a given weekend, hey, I think this is the text I'm going to preach. Um, it's one of these chapters uh, in which, in, in the entire chapter, God is not explicitly present. I mean, obviously he's present because God is, you know, omnipresent. He is everywhere. And so, so you know, where can we go from his spirit? Where can we flee from his presence? He, he's obviously present in that way. But he's not mentioned. He's not directly referenced. There's, in chapter 34, there's no mention of him. There's no prayer to him. There's no intervention by him. And it's no coincidence that Genesis chapter 34 is one of the, it's one of the most ugly and depraved incidents in all of scripture. Not only the rape of Dina, but the response by the sons where they go and literally uh, massacre an entire city. You know, before we even get into it, I want to actually talk about what why Moses would be reporting something like this in the scripture. He now Moses is doing a couple of things. There's a lot of different like reasons and purposes behind the book of Genesis. One of which is to give the children of Israel a history of the people that have come before and and, and to explain to them as they're coming out of Egypt and dwelling in the land, explain to them some of the past relations that they've had with their neighbors. There's other purposes, you know, uh, demonstrating the sinfulness of man, demonstrating our need for a savior, um, pointing us to the promised Messiah. Yet, another purpose of the book of Genesis is to have the children of Israel who are now dwelling in the land and wrestling through these neighbors, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and all the neighbors. How are we relate to relate to the people around us? And so there's educational and instructional uh, purposes to the book of Genesis. And so that's what we're going to be, that is a little bit of what we're focusing here on, because we still have some of those same questions. How do we as the church confront and respond to the evil that we see around us? And in the society around us, how do we relate to the wickedness that we see kind of around us, and when it begins to affect us, when it begins to when it begins to be even within us. And so in this passage, like the broad view of this passage is we're going to see two basic approaches to, uh, two basic responses to this evil, evil thing that happened. And one response that kind of is going to be weighed in this passage is, kind of a silent passivity, an acceptance that comes about just by doing nothing and saying nothing. And the other kind of response is like a a vengeful retribution, a violent and vengeful retribution. Think about in our day how we as a church and, and how we as a society confront evil and how often we fall into one of those two responses. Either just silence, complicitness, agreement, compromise, acceptance of the wickedness and the wicked ways, or kind of this vengeful retribution, the internet outrage mobs pouncing on any infraction, 
Think about, you know, I, I was reading last night about some of the things that have been happening lately in the Catholic Church, of the institutional cover-ups of some of the abuses and things. You can think about the Me Too movement. You can think about internet outrage just in general, the mob mentality. You can think about how we are passive and silent in the face of evil, such as abortion, which has taken more lives in the last 40 years than the population of Canada. And so we can think about how we are so prone to either move into silence or move into vengeance. And that's what we're struggling with in this chapter. But before we get to that, I just want to look at this, what what has led to this uh, disaster, what leads to this disaster. Uh, Genesis chapter 34, verse 1, it, it seems very innocent how this chapter starts out, but, but it's pretty ominous how this chapter starts out. It says in verse 1, Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now that, that may not seem like such a big deal to us. So, so this, this young lady, people think she may have been 15, 16, she's curious, she wants to go out. She, we don't know if Dina's the only daughter of Jacob, she's the only one mentioned, so maybe she just wanted some female companionship or whatever, but, but she goes out to, to see the women of the land, and it may not sound like a big deal to our ears, but remember, Moses is writing this to the children of Israel. To the children of Israel, where throughout the writings of the Pentateuch, we get a warning time and time and time again to be separated from, to not be attracted to the ways of the people of the land around the land of Canaan. And so it's it's a very subtle thing, but but this first verse is very ominous because the, the children of Israel were called to live as a peculiar people, as a separated people, as a different people, and yet the story of their nation is that their hearts were prone to wander, and their hearts were prone to be attracted to the ways of the people around them. And so the first element of this um, of this disaster that overtakes Dina is this naive curiosity within her to go out and to be among and to see the women of, of the land. <laughs> Now, Dina is probably a young girl, as I said at this point. In, in fact, in verse 4, she's still called a young girl. She's still called a girl, meaning, and the, the word meaning like a like young girl. When uh, when Shepherd says, get this girl for me. He doesn't say, get me this young woman. He doesn't say, get me this woman. He says, get me this girl. And so she's, she's probably still young, teenager. Uh, and yet, she's free to wander among the land and... And Jacob's permissiveness is highlighted here, especially as Dina is introduced as the daughter of Leah. Right? She's introduced to us first as the daughter of Leah. Who's Leah? Leah, as we've seen already, Leah is the despised, neglected wife. And, and she now is the daughter of the wife of neglect. It's especially in contrast, as we're going to read forward in the book of Genesis, because in just a few chapters, some of Rachel's kids are going to get into predicaments, right? And when Rachel's kids, Joseph and Benjamin, uh, fall into evilness and fall into calamity, Jacob's not passive. 
Jacob rages and weeps and cries and everything within him. And then he wants to take Benjamin away from me. He says, if you take my son away from him, I will die. You're going to bring death to me. And yet, when it's Dina, the, son, the daughter of the neglected wife, there is, yeah, there, there's no intervention here preventing her from going and wandering among the daughters of the land. And just, it's not the main point of this passage, and it's, it's hardly a point, but I would say, fathers and mothers, parents, one of our primary responsibilities as godly parents is to watch over our children and protect them. And teenagers, I want you to know this about your parents, not just teenagers, children, about your parents who are trying to seek the Lord, one of their primary responsibilities as parents is to protect you, is to watch over you, and is to guard you, and to shield you to a degree about the aggressive nature of the society around us that's trying to force its values upon you. We, we understand, teenagers, we understand you have a curiosity, particularly if you grow up in the church, you have a curiosity about the ways of the world around us, and an interest in, in you know, seeing, you know, what I think appeals to you is, for example, I downloaded Snapchat recently and they've got this, like, they've got this page on it, right? Where they've got, like, Team Vogue and Team Cosmo, and they're talking about things on that that none of, none of us, adults even, should be interested in or curious about. And they are marketing this, and they're marketing this lifestyle to you. And parents, one of our jobs as Christian parents is to take appropriate measures to protect our children. We have young families here, we have young parents here. You've got to have a, you need a filter on the internet of your house. You need to know who your kids' friends are and their parents are and what values they'll be exposed to when you go over to their houses. You need to know who's holding the party. I, I, you know, I, I think I've become a bit more conservative than this. Like, I'm sorry, Caden. Social media is not going on your phone for a while, and uh, and that's just that's just some of the things. I, I was naive a little bit of, of how aggressive the world and its culture are going after our kids. And it's not to say we put them in a bubble and we shield them against everything. It is to say that is our one of our primary responsibilities as parents to oversee to watch over protect our kids. And so this naive curiosity and, and also children and you receive that protection from your parents as an act and a gift of love. Okay? It's an act and a gift of love. It's not they're trying to kill your joy. It's that they are trying to love you in that. But Jacob does nothing as Dina wanders off to the city of a prince called Shechem. And that's where disaster happens. And she's taken forcibly by Shechem, the prince of the land. And she's sexually assaulted. She's defiled. The word is, she's humiliated. Um, and that's all in verse 2. In verse 2, um, this phrase here, and lay with her, uh, it's... That and lay with her makes it sound like it's the same way that other times in the Old Testament speaks of of a consensual relationship between a husband and wife. Uh, that's not happening here. It's a different phrase. It's and he laid her. It's this idea of forceful, um, yeah, it's sexual assault, and he humiliates her. Yet 
Look at verse 3. In verse 3, we have almost a completely different story. Like verse 2, he's about the biggest monster you can ever comprehend. And in verse 3, suddenly he seems like some sort of hopeless romantic. His soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman, and he spoke tenderly to her. And it seems strange to us. How, how can he be such a monster in one verse, and such a tender, romantic, perfect gentleman in the second? And how do we reconcile the two? And here is, here's my suggestion. You can take this with a grain of salt, but this would be upon my reflection on it. In a society that has rejected biblical morality, where the, in, a, in a culture in which the sexual impulse is exalted, the lines between romantic pursuit and sexual exploitation will inevitably be blurred. The, let me say that again. The lines between romantic pursuit and sexual exploitation in a culture that exalts the sexual impulse the lines will be inevitably blurred. This is the true rape culture that permeates our society as it did the Canaanite town. Shechem may in fact have been drawn to Dina and loved her, but the only way he could understand how to, uh, the outlet for his attraction was through a sexual impulse that was exploitative. And so he seized her and laid her and humiliated her. When we live in a society of blurred lines, people, especially women, get exploited. This is our culture, young people and old people. This is our culture. We live in a culture in which romantic pursuit and sexual exploitation are blurred. We literally had a song that was number one a few years ago, literally called Blurred Lines. And it got radio play, and you guys all know the song. And it's literally celebrating the blur blurring of the lines between sexual pursuit and sexual exploitation. I don't need to even speak more. You know the stories of how this is exploiting, objectifying, pressuring young people to sin. Listen, within us, the people of God, it, it, Moses interjects here and says, these things should, these things are, how does he say it? He says, uh, he had done an outrageous thing in Israel, for such a thing must not be done. Listen, within us, the church, the people of God, there is no room for exploitation, there's no room for seduction or pressuring the opposite sex. There's no room for objectifying the opposite sex. There's not a, to be a hint of sexual immorality or sexual exploitation among God's people. Young women, young men, young women are your sisters and are to be treated as such. And young women, young men are your brothers and are to be treated as such. And we do have this amazing, amazing line of consent within the church. It's when you literally stand up in front of everybody you know, your family and your friends, and you make vows to one another, and one of those vows is to have and to hold from this day forward. That that's pretty clear. And so there's there but but 
So you have a perfect storm in this passage. You have Dina's naive curiosity. You have Jacob's overly permissive neglect, household of neglect. And you have this culture of exploitation that confuses romantic pursuit with sexual exploitation. And you get this disaster. And you get this disaster. Dina's humiliated and she's defiled. An evil act has occurred, as Moses tells us, an outrageous thing to have occurred in Israel, such as must not be done. And yet the, the young man, I just want to let that sink in there, because now we're going to get to the approaches. How do we, how do we preach this in a Me Too era? What's the approach here? So the young man, Shechem, wants to marry Dina. He's fallen in love with her, or at least fallen in lust with her. And his father approaches Jacob and his brothers, and in this interaction we see two basic responses in this text. Right? I've kind of already named them. You have the silent passivity of Jacob, moral compromise, and you have the vengeful retaliation of the sons. So let's look at Jacob's response. Jacob's response. Now, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, and so Jacob held his peace until they came. Being confronted with the evil against his own daughter, Jacob's completely silent. He's got nothing to say. And in fact, throughout this chapter, Jacob says nothing. He does nothing. He takes no action until the end of the chapter. It's, it's only at the end, after his sons have acted, that Jacob criticizes them for the way that they've dealt with the matter. And he says to them at the end of the chapter, Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me to attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Look at how many times me, me, my, I, I, goes through this whole passage. Jacob is concerned with peace. Right? He, he's the, the phrase brought trouble on me should be understood as, understood as you have disturbed my peace in relation to the inhabitants of the land. If you flip back a chapter, at the end of chapter 33, verse 18, when Jacob actually comes to dwell among the village in the city of Shechem, it says this in verse 18 of chapter 33, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. And so Jacob has seen this city where he wishes to dwell, the city that Shechem dwells in, he has seen this as a place of peace. And when he hears about how his daughter has been exploited, he holds his peace. And when his sons act out in violent, vengeful retribution, he says, you have disturbed my peace. And Jacob's motive among this whole thing seems, for, for his silent passivity, is that he doesn't seem to want to rock the boat. He doesn't want to confront or speak out or address the evil and the wickedness going on around him and the nations around him. And so he keeps silent within all of that. And he's willing to even sacrifice his own daughter to keep peace with the world. And he refuses to confront evil. He refuses to name it as evil. He refuses to deal with it as evil. And let me suggest to you, and this may not pop out to you directly, immediately from the text. But let me suggest to you the most evil and the most grievous way that Jacob holds his peace. 
Jacob's silent passivity is revealed in the passage in giving his tacit approval for Shechem to marry his daughter if only the men of Shechem's village would be circumcised and become one people with Jacob's family. Right? Now, his, the sons answer Shechem, and the sons give this proposal to Hamar. Yet Jacob, as head of the household, in his silence, is giving tacit approval to this proposal. He's, the, the son's proposal is basically this. Only on this condition will we agree with you. That you become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. And then it says this. We will dwell with you and we will become one people. Now, it seems to us that that might be a good thing. We live in an era of inclusion. And we live in an era of seeking to find common ground and unity and coming together as a people. Yet, this silence acceptance by Jacob is a terrible sin against the Lord. God, in Genesis 17, God had given the covenant sign of circumcision to the children of Abraham and their descendants to be unmarked, to be a sign that they were to be set apart from the nations of the world. This covenant sign was to be an outward indicator of their inward covenant that the Lord Jehovah had made with them. That they were to be set apart as the people of God. And so this covenant sign was the sign and the mark of that special and unique relationship that the children of Israel had with God. And yet, in this proposal, the proposal is basically to extend the covenant sign outward to a people who have no relationship to Jehovah God. It is to make a mockery of the covenant sign and to make a mockery of Israel's state as covenant people. It has nothing to do with the sons of Israel going to Hamar and saying, we serve the God of Jacob. We serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We serve the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. If you are to bow down before him and acknowledge him as Lord, then we can be together as one people. We can extend the covenant sign to you, and we might dwell together in unity. Instead, they're willing to desecrate and to make a mockery of the covenant sign by saying, hey, it will be good for us, it will be good for our business and our trade and our relationship if you just take this sign and we'll marry into you. You can have our daughters and we'll have your daughters and wives. Do you, do you see how God is present in this chapter? Because God is the one who has instituted Israel and is, as his covenant people and circumcision as his covenant sign. God is present here, but Jacob and his sons are turning up their noses at him. By saying, for the sake of harmony, for the sake of peace, for the sake of prosperity, for the sake of not rocking the boat, we will accept and compromise with the nations around us. And we can have unity while we're sitting upon God's covenant. It is, that, it's, it's horrific. And so Jacob's response fails, and Jacob's response is censured in this text. And so let's look at the other response, the response of his sons, vengeful retribution. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it. So as soon as they hear it, they rush in at the idea. And the men were indignant and very angry because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. 
for such a thing must not be done. And the brothers, they make this proposal about circumcision, not because they're trying to really make peace with them. It says they, they made this proposal because they were dealing deceitfully with them. They knew exactly what they were going to do. And on the third day, when the men of Shechem, Shechem's village were still sore, two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brother, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and they killed all the males. They killed Hamer and his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, plundered the city because they defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and what was ever in the city and the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and they plundered. The sons of Jacob have no problem understanding that what Shechem did to their sister was wicked. They have no, they, they have no problem. Their moral outrage, yes, was, their moral, they, they had a proper moral outrage. But how did they act on that moral outrage of the wickedness that was committed against their sister? In taking vengeful retribution into their own hands, they're unable to restrain their anger and their thirst for vengeance, and they commit genocide against an entire village. They sweep away. Remember in Genesis, I think it's 18, Sodom and Gomorrah, when Abraham says, should not the judge of the universe do what is right? Who are you, God, to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In God's concern for his justice, he will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked, but his these children of Israel, in their vengeful retribution, care not, they, they do not truly know the God of justice. And they sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And yes, as you read Genesis 34, you should be horrified at Shechem and his act of exploitation. And you should be horrified at Jacob and how he does not protect his daughter and how he's how he's silent in the face of this wickedness. And we should be horrified at this genocide committed at the hands of Simeon and Levi. And it's not the last time in the book that they'll act in violence. They're going to act violently against Joseph and others. And, And while they get the last word in this chapter, as we read on, we understand exactly what God thinks of this approach. As Jacob, before Jacob dies, he prophesies and blesses his sons. And this is what he prophesies over Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Right? Like, I'm not going to listen when they tell me how to take vengeance. Oh my glory, be not joined in their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. And that's, they just, wow. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. This actually has generational impact upon the sons of Simeon and Levi, as they do not receive an inheritance in the land as the rest of the children of Israel. And so the sons are rebuked for allowing their anger to spill into vengeful retribution. And then, and then that's where the chapter ends. I'm oh, sorry, I don't have this verse, but I want you to look at your copy of the scriptures. Just see how this chapter ends. Because this is an interesting way of this chapter ending. In verse 30, this is how it ends. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, 
You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Simeon and Levi said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And the chapter finishes. And, and it seems that we just simply move on now to the next story. And I'll, I'll tell you, when I was first coming through this, I was doing my daily Bible reading and coming going, reading through Genesis, and I got to the end of this chapter, and I said, what is that all about, God? It just ends with the sons talking to Jacob, and Jacob saying, you shouldn't have done that, you disturbed my peace, and the son's going, well, she, well, well, he treated our sister like a prostitute. And then silence. And, and I, you can struggle through this passage for hours and days and possibly decades and, and go, God, so who's right? right? It kind of ends just saying, who wins? Which, which one of these approach wins out? Silent complicity or, or ventral retribution. Who wins? And to be honest, I don't think the Bible always necessarily needs to give us in each paragraph and each chapter answers. I think that sometimes Moses was writing to, in order for the children of Israel and for us to meditate and to reflect deeply upon, well, how's our response to the wickedness we see around us? How's our response? How, what is our response? What's our tendency when we are outraged about evil that has been committed? Do, do, do we, as a church, do you, as an individual, do you do you hold your tongue? Do you do you silently agree and, and compromise when you see wickedness going on? Do we just say that's not for me to call out? Do you join the, the mob? Tearing down, destroying before due process? Do you how, how do you how do you deal with evil? I don't I don't think it's answered in Genesis thirty four. I think we're supposed to take it deeply and wrestle with it. Um, I, 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 do, I, do, I don't want to end, end there, though. I want to, I want to show you maybe my, my, my at least initial um, trying to put piece some things back together. And I think the place where we, we would begin to piece some of this back together is back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Going back to the call that started this all. Going back to the call and the promise given to Jacob's great-grandfather, or grandfather, Abraham. In this call to Abraham, this sets in motion everything that follows through Isaac's life and through Jacob's life and through the children of Israel. And it even sets into motion all that will be in God's plan of redemption culminating in Jesus Christ. And, and at its heart... The Abrahamic call, the Abrahamic promise, is one of separation and blessing. Right? He, God said to Abraham, Abram, go from your country and your kindred in your father's house. Separation. And all that I will show, to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, and later he says, in your offspring, your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so 
Think of the Abrahamic promise to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as one of separation and blessing. That, that Abraham's descendants will be separate from the nations around them. They'll be unique. They'll be peculiar. They'll be particular. They'll be separate. And they will be a blessing to the nations around them. And actually, in Genesis 35, as I read to the kids, you see there's a restatement to Israel now, to Jacob, of the Abrahamic promise. God is taking Jacob, Israel, back to the Abrahamic promise of separation and a blessing. And so, that would be, in my understanding, part of this answer, probably not the full answer, but part of the answer would be a return to the promise of God in separation and blessing. So separation. Jacob goes and he dedicates himself and his family to full obedience in the Lord. Genesis 35. So I don't think this is starting a new thing. We, you know, these chapter divisions, they're artificial. We added them later. But, but later, into all this wickedness, into all the wickedness and evil and exploitation and oppression of Genesis 34, God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And so Jacob said to his household, and to all who were with him, and this includes Rachel who stole Laban's household idols, and this includes Simeon and Levi, put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments, which is a, which is a picture of repentance. And let's arise and let's go up to Bethel so I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and the God who has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they as a household, they repent, they give to Jacob all the foreign gods of the hand and the rings that were in their ears and Jacob buries them. He hids them under the terebinth tree that was near and again the city of Shechem. They leave it all behind. They, 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 they devote themselves and dedicate themselves as a household fully to the Lord. They repent of carrying around these idols that they had carried with them. And God tells them, you come back here to Bethel where you met me. And it's interesting that through all where Jacob has traveled, yes, the Lord has been with him. Yes, the Lord has been faithful to him. Yes, the Lord has blessed him, even in Jacob's wanderings. Yet Jacob has, even though he wrestled with God last week, and he truly, I believe, became a child of God as he wrestled with God last week. As we talked about last week, not he wrestled with God last week. He still has not fully purged and purified and sanctified and set apart his household to the Lord. So that's what God instructs him to do. Separate yourselves from the nation. So how do we deal with evil and wickedness? As the people of God, well, the children of Israel were called to be a separate people. And they were called that when, when, the, when the ways of the nations around them started seeping into their own community, they were called to purge the evil, evil from themselves. To call out evil, to recognize wickedness as wickedness. And to separate and purge it from without and within. And we, the people of God, are no less called to separate ourselves 
and to purge the evil from within. To, to speak when we see wickedness occur outside or within, to not be silent about it, but to speak and to understand, and to name it as wicked and to deal with it. And, and, and this starts within the household of God, as Paul says. Right? Paul says, I, I think you're not called to purge all the evil from out there in the world, but you are called to purify yourself and to judge the one who is within. And so in a church, what that means is admonishing one another, calling each other out. It may even mean removing someone from membership if they continue in the ways of wickedness of the world around us. What it means as a church is that we are a peculiar people, that we are a different people, that we will live differently than the culture around us. And yet, we're also called to be a blessing. A blessing. Now, I, I can't give you like a little verse out of this chapter. I, I just have to go back to that Abrahamic promise. That you will be a blessing, and in you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. In the New Testament, it is very clear. That blessing that will bless the nations is Jesus Christ. Is the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise through which the nations will be blessed. And so, and so I, I think I'm left to kind of reflect on what could Jacob have done? What could Jacob have done to be a blessing to Shechem and to be a blessing to the Hivites? Well, I don't know. Here's my thought. Jacob could have called Shechem to true repentance. He could have declared to Shechem's family that the Lord, that the, Israel, that the Israelites served, the God of Jacob, is different than the gods that they worshipped. That the God of Jacob is, as it says in Exodus 34, verse 6, the, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He could have preached the gospel. See, see, in preaching the gospel to the nations, we are not covering up or being silent about evil. The gospel of Jesus Christ actually speaks to the evil acts that human beings commit and the nations commit. And beyond that, it doesn't just speak to our actions. It speaks to the wickedness of our heart. And so we are not... We're not condemning the nations when we point out the wickedness within. We literally are demonstrating the love of God where we're not turning away from evil, but we are addressing it. Jacob could have taught Shechem about the true nature of forgiveness. He could have taught Jacob about the promise of the deliverer, the Messiah, that was going to come and that was going to crush evil forever. He could have proclaimed to Shechem the gospel of that promise. He could have instructed Shechem. As Shechem came to know the God of Jacob, he could have instructed Shechem to be circumcised, not as an agreement of compromise, but as a sign of the covenant of his living, forgiving Lord. And welcome Shechem and any others who would truly repent and trust in the hope of Messiah into covenant community. In this way, Shechem's sin would have been addressed head-on. It would have been recognized. 
It would have been called evil. It would have been repented of, and the relationship could have been restored. And, and so the gospel deals with evil in ways that silent passivity can never address the evil of the heart. And the gospel deals with evil in a way that vengeful retribution can never address. And I'll leave you just with these words of Jesus. To love our enemies. To pray for those who persecute us. That's what the gospel calls us to as we consider the evil and the wickedness around us. Separation, a purging, and a blessing. Heavenly Father,